Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at CAMH. .ca/canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you to the Ryerson Journalism School Alumni Association, to Maurice, everybody who's uh, helped put this together. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. Welcome to our event, which is also, everyone should know before we get to the Q&A, uh, going to be an episode of Canada Land. I haven't signed any agreement. <laughs> Your presence is consent. <laughs> Journalism is an unregulated profession. Anybody can do it. You do not need a degree. Sorry, everybody here. <laughs> You do not need a license. Every person in this country is one killer story pitch away from being a published journalist with a byline from a mainstream news org. You need higher credentials to be a barber. If you ask me, that is exactly how it should be. But what happens when the press gets something wrong? If a doctor or a lawyer violates the code of ethics of their profession, there are bodies that you can go to that regulate those professions, and those people can be kicked out of their professions. What do you do when the press gets something wrong? What can you do short of launching a costly libel lawsuit when something about you or something that matters to you is simply not so, and it's published for the entire country, for the entire world to see? You can send a letter to the editor, I guess. Some newspapers now have public editors, 
In Canada, believe it or not, there are still 112 daily newspapers and 1,040 community newspapers. Five of them have public editors. So if uh, your issue pertains to one of those papers, you can, you can write to the public editor uh, and you can complain. And more about why that might not work later on. Another option has been that you can go to a press council, an independent organization that newspapers opt into that investigate complaints and issue decisions about whether or not journalism is up to snuff. We've had a bunch of these. The Ontario Press Council, the Atlantic Press Council, the British Columbia Press Council. But these press councils struggled for membership in recent years. Arguably, they have also struggled for relevance. And they have now amalgamated into the National News Media Council. John Fraser is the first president and CEO of the National News Media Council. John Fraser is a former Globe and Mail journalist. He was the China bureau chief, a national editor. He was the former editor of Saturday Night Magazine in one of its many incarnations, and the former master of Massey College. And he'll be talking with me about the National News Media Council in just a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Erica Meir, Martin Dinan, Stephen Moore, Ben Chambers, Matthew, Modi, Hugo Au, Karen Keefe, and Matt Roy. Matt, why did you decide to be awesome? Because you're willing to talk about indigenous issues. We need people willing to stand up to established powers without fear of being fired or marginalized. Thanks, Jesse. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by the Canadian-made app, Giftagram. This is important information for you this holiday season. 
You can give gifts in three clicks. You download Giftogram to your iOS device. You click on the gift you want from their selection of well-curated, really interesting gifts. And that is it. You don't have to enter in shipping information. It's all taken care of. I asked Giftogram's co-founder, Jason, why he invented Giftogram. Gifting has become a giant pain in the ass, and no one has time anymore. We don't know what to get. We don't know where to get it. We've kind of defaulted to texting someone happy birthday or posting on their Facebook wall or buying them a drink at the bar, which are all nice thoughts. But gifting should be fun. It should be a fun experience. And by making it really easy, I think we're making it enjoyable again. When you ship a gift to Graham Gift, it arrives in three to five days. That's what they say. But when I tried it, it arrived in two. You can ship to anywhere in Canada and the recipient finds out that they're getting a gift right when you order it. Now, here is the important part. Giftogram is so confident that you're going to use them again and again that they are giving you $20. If you use the gift code CANADALAND, when you buy your first gift with Giftogram, you'll get $20 towards that purchase. If you buy a $20 gift, it's a free gift. Why wouldn't you do this? Go download Giftogram right now in the Apple iTunes Store. Download Giftogram for your iOS device. The Android version is coming this month. Do it. John, how are you? I'm fine for the moment. (laughs) This is the format that I'm going to suggest. I run a small online news organization, and I have no interest in joining your news council. And throughout the course of our conversation, you're going to try to convince me as to why I should. You're not going to change my mind. That never happens. (laughs) But everyone listening can determine whether or not I'm being pig-headed and foolish not to have my mind changed. Does that sound okay? Yeah. All right. What is the purpose of a press council. Sign up to my organization and I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. It's a means to a certain end. Somewhere in the area between, um, you mentioned a letter to the editor and going to a libel lawyer. I've written letters to the editor. They can be deeply satisfying, what they choose to publish, or they can be really frustrating because of what they choose not to publish. And I, when I was there Saturday night, I was two or three times at lawyers' offices. And the one time when I was outraged at the, at the suit and decided we should fight it, it was one of the most dispiriting experiences of my life, um, simply because of the, the side roads you go in legal disputes. You never, you're never allowed to go the main route. Um, and uh, I wish uh, we had gone to a press council then on, on a couple of things. I've also, uh, in my own career, made enough mistakes um, that I think it would have been uh, good if I'd had a bigger awareness that there was someone, somebody, that was prepared to take a look at that. Not to send me off to prison or anything, but to make me think about due responsibility. It's not a hard sell. I'm going to try and sell you, Jesse, but um, uh, you'll be crawling to join my organization before the month (laughs) is over, and I may take you in. Mark Francois Bernier is a professor of communications at the University of Ottawa. He says that the notions of accountability and transparency are not something the media actually values, that we in the media are better at demanding it than doing it ourselves. We know this because we are trying to hold politicians and all kinds of institutions accountable every day. Nobody wants to be held more accountable. Nobody wants to be judged or to be found wanting. So why do organizations submit to, uh, essentially, if you don't have to, if it's not a a, a mandatory part of being a journalist, you opt in to have somebody judge your work and then issue a public declaration of whether you got it right or wrong. 
Well, I think the original reason why um, uh, Bell and Hondrick, the, um, the Zeus of, of the star from another generation, uh, was so keen on the Ontario Press Council when it got started, was he thought it gave the public a sense of confidence that they could trust their re what they were reading in the star. And I think that it's true. We, 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 are, we are not a, a, a medieval guild unit here. Earning trust is something that individual journalists build up because of their reputation, either for fearlessness or for honesty. You can get really bad reputations also as a journalist for gliding over facts or, or um, uh, becoming so partisan that it bridges over almost into a, a, a kind of caricature of journalism. So a body like the new National News Media Council, which may consider your application in time, is there simply as an extra measure of security for the reading public, but it's also a huge element of security for working journalists and the owners of papers and small institutions like blogs because there is the ever-present threat, whether you believe it or not, of government intervention. Hold on a second. What is the threat of government inter intervention into the media? Okay, let's just leave Canada for a moment go to the go to England. Okay. And the old British Press Council, it became something else, but when the hacking scandal started, it was asked to investigate the news of the world, and they let themselves be conned by the news of the world. They, they accepted the idea there was just one rogue journalist. And when um, that turned out not to be the case, it basically collapsed. And then we got the Leveson inquiry. And guess what they recommended? You know what they recommended? Tell us. A government-controlled or government-created independent, independent press scrutiny organization, which now exists and is driving journalists crazy over there. So that's one thing we can do, is we can try and keep government off your back. Uh -huh. So and this is like the comic book uh, code authority or the video game electronic standards rating board. It's regulate yourself before it's done to you. And, and the government seizes essentially some sort of judicial control, regulatory yeah, the, control. The, in, in that sense, it's similar to the Canadian Medical Association or, or the uh, Bar Association. Now I understand. You're blackmailing me. No, if, you, if you're worried. I mean, should you be worried? I, I, I've read one article on you. <laughs> I, I would have complained about it if it wasn't true. Should we be worried of the government... Uh, taking regulatory control of, of, of journalism. So that's an interesting argument because it seems to be suggesting that these press councils are created to protect the media, not to protect the public. To, to do both. That, that was from the beginning. It was always from the beginning. It was to convince the public and any, regu any, any regulatory instincts in, in uh, elected officials that this was a profession, even if it wasn't handing out diplomas so that you could perform. They were handing out jobs. And they had, we had plenty of diplomas. It's the jobs that are wanted. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There is an element in which journalists prey on the public. There's How's a bad that? joke. Well, there's a bad joke, of which, thanks to a friend, I'm now saying it. Used to, the question was, why do journalists and lawyers have such a bad reputation? And the answer is because you haven't worked with an architect yet. But the ground of that joke is interesting because all three professions are dream merchants and are basically lying to people, mm -hmm. in essence. The lawyer says to Conrad Black, I can keep you out of prison, and still sends the bill when he's inside prison. The, the journalist tells Conrad Black, I want to do your story, and when he reads it, it's not, it's not your story. And the architect says he's going to build your dream, and when you see the plans and the bill, you find out it's not really so much your dream as his or her dream. So we are, to some extent, preying on the public. Yeah. And in that sense, probably a press council is a good thing to have because it is another source, sub-lawyers, sub 
libel and litigation, and maybe a bit more effective often than a letter to the editor. Then the other issue that's out there is really interesting, is there's citizen journalists who are watching journalists. It's much the same as the uh, police force. I thought that the whole brouhaha and the star over um, Ms. Porter's problems, um, I mean, it was against someone that a lot of people would think was difficult. So this is Catherine Porter's piece where she went to a rally and her daughter got into a debate with Ezra Levant. And, and she wrote a column. She wrote a column about it. He later contested some of the facts that she presented. He didn't have to contest it. There was, it was all on, on camera. Yeah. Everyone else could see that, in fact, the column was a fair bit off from what they could see. The Ezra Levant, actually, the uh, difficult and argumentative and uh, pugnacious Ezra Levant was being kind of uncle-like to a little girl. And she said, my mom says you don't believe in climate warming. And he said, of course I believe in climate warming. You heard about the Ice Age. I mean, it was this conversation going on. Well, it was interesting because he, he, he uh, without getting too, too much into an aside here, he protested that he wasn't actually arguing with a young girl. But he kind of was arguing with a little girl after a while. He was very friendly. But yeah, she, she, she you know, maybe memory didn't serve you, her properly. That's what you interpret from what you She saw. misrepresented it somewhat. There were apologies. It, yeah, was, yeah. it was retracted, I think. Uh, yeah. There was a public editor there. Um, yeah. But like it you said. It came before the press council, and the press council felt didn't have to do anything because the star had handled it so well. And you bring this up uh, in the context of social media and, and citizen journalism, where it was caught on video. I mean, I guess if we can call Israel Levant a citizen journalist, it was his own. Uh, video footage, I believe, that showed that there was a disparity between what the star printed. I mean, that's a wonderful point. Why do we need an official press council when we have the immediate recourse of holding the press accountable on Twitter, on our blogs, on social media? Because the member newspapers want one, is, is the simplest answer. And so it is for the papers? It is for the papers to show the public that they care. Walk me through it. What happens? It is an extra badge uh, of uh, you know, official credibility. We are a member of this press council, and if you have problems with us, there's an independent body you can take your complaint to. Walk me through the process of what happens when you take your complaint to the National Press Council. We haven't had so many. We've only been in business a couple of weeks. Let me walk you through as best I can, and we've got Don McCurdy here who can extend on it if you want. But the, you've probably forgotten we had a very fat mayor here uh, named Ford, and the Toronto Star was on the front lines uh, reporting on this and that, and there were some people that took deep offense to the kind of reporting. They alleged that star reporters were actually trespassing on Ford property. They were upset also at the Globe and Mail for um, the accounts of Doug Ford's youth. And there was a body of complaint growing that they did not feel the star of the Globe were dealing with, and so it came as quite a few complaints to the press council. So in the end, what happens is they, um, and Don, I'm, I will not mind if I'm corrected here at all. I'm, I'm still on a, on a learning curve here, and we're still trying to develop our own systems at the National News Media Council. But a panel meets. There are uh, nine uh, public uh, representatives of the public on the Ontario Press Council and eight members of the industry, various members, and they decide whether these complaints should go forward to a major council meeting. And Don, uh, they, they did decide, and in fact, it was held in the public, uh, a chance for the public to come and hear both sides to the case. I think it was held at this university, wasn't it? And they came out on the side of the newspaper. In fact, most of the press council decisions do tend to come out on the side of the paper because a lot of what a press council has to do is explain journalism to, to people who are angry. We, we are, if nothing else, you probably like rants. 
coming your direction. If not, not everyone does. And if nothing else, the press council takes the burden of rant, ranting away from uh, working journalists. So I think the majority of stuff that comes into uh, the old press councils was stuff that never went much further than just a patient listening device. And newspapers have been grateful for that. Of course, there's another explanation as to why the decisions go in the favor of the newspapers. It's not necessarily that everyone is just a crank who doesn't understand journalism. It is, as you say, true that a lot of the people making these decisions are themselves veterans of the newspaper industry with extensive personal relationships with the people who are being complained about. Well, the majority are actually public members, not, not newspaper people. The majority? Yeah, by one. The chair, <laughs> and the chair always has to be. Right. Is that not a problem, though? Is there not an element of conflict of interest? And I think specifically, I mean, looking holistically, not just at, at all the different venues, public editors, ombudspeople, and press councils, the CBC has Esther Ankin as their ombudsperson. She's a, a career CBC journalist. The Globe and Mail hired Sylvia Stead, who spent two decades at the Globe and Mail. John Gordon Miller, the professor emeritus uh, here at Ryerson, said of, of Sylvia Stead's appointment as the public editor of the Globe, choosing a newsroom veteran as the public editor of the Globe and Mail and making her report through the editor-in-chief is a terrible conflict of interest. This is not supposed to be a job for anyone who has drunk the Kool-Aid. And Sylvia Stead, as I understand it, was uh, uh, collaborated with you in founding this, this press council. I Do didn't found the press council. I was hired by it. I'm sorry, in, in, in organizing the... Just trying to keep things accurate here. Accuracy is important. I appreciate that. <laughs> if only there was someone you could complain to. Um, <laughs> is this a problem that the people who are... Conflict of interest. It's always a problem everywhere. But how can you expect an objective decision from people who, first of all, professionally are going to side with journalists because they themselves are journalists, and, and second of all, actually might know and have all sorts of extensive personal relationships with the people being complained about? Well, there's just a few practical answers. Uh, if... if uh, We'll follow the same practice. If there's someone on the council, one of, one of the professional uh, members, and their actual institution comes up, they have to recuse themselves. They actually have to leave the room. Uh -huh. And that's standard practice, I think, of any one of these sorts of things. It doesn't get to the root of the fact that they, this is a body of people actively involved in examining complaints and, and that they may have all sorts of... Um, associations, but so does a jury of peers um, in a courthouse. I mean, you, there is no cleansed body on God's earth, but what you can do is to have certain practices that should be perceived and observed, and all of the big council uh, meetings are, are public meetings, so that if you care to come to hear them, and um, you can. What happens next? Let's say that the complaint is found in the, in the plaintiff's favor and the, and the media got something wrong. What can a press council do? Well, the condition of joining the press council is that you agree, if you're found to have made a mistake, that you correct it. Isn't one of the stipulations also that you publish the finding? Well, that's what I mean. You've, right. You've, that, that is the correction. How's that worked out in practice? The Ontario Press Council is pretty good, isn't it? I don't know about some of the regional. We're still, I'm still... Um, how long can I get away with being on a learning curve? About another month. <laughs> can I make one yeah. point? Sure. Do we have a microphone? It's Don McCurdy. I used to be with the Ontario Press Council. Now I'm with the News Media Council. Your point about journalists judging journalists, no one is harder on a journalist than another journalist. You know that, Jesse. You've been there. You do that. I've met some ferocious comment sections in my time, too. Um, but the point is well taken. We tear each other's work apart. 
you say there's no body that is you know squeaky clean, but there are a few bodies that are as intertwined as our small industry. Sure, there are all over the place. The medical association is the the bar association. Yeah, maybe there's no point to them, but on the whole, they function. Um, you you see lawyers being disbarred. We we can't disbar you, but imagine if it was a pretty egregious malfaction that came to the press council and they got exposed, you'd have a hard time getting work. We can't of ourselves do anything to you, but if the council decides that the story is in error and it has to be fixed, it, it can be pretty humiliating. But things have changed anyway with, with internally in papers. When I was at the Globe and Mail, there was a famous plagiarism case with Dick Beddoes, the sports journalist who was high profile and sold lots of papers and he, he um, perhaps somewhat foolishly simply repeated the column that was in the New York Times less than a year before uh, in the Globe and Mail, and he was fired the next day. Uh, Can I ask you as an aside, just while we're chatting, because you have a lot of experience amongst newspaper people, why do people do this? I mean, Oh, there's it, a whole psychology about that. It's, it's, the best person to ask is Robert Fulford, who's made a real study of plagiarism in our profession. He says it's a psychological condition. It comes also with the daringness of, of what motivates a person to be a journalist, and it comes with the exposure uh, as you rise up the ranks and you, the personality cult syndrome. And it also, in the case of Dick Beddoes, one of the problems was the expectation in the old dailies of how many columns you're expected to write a week. And I think he was expected to, to do five. Uh-huh. Sort of two theories, one being that the need to feed the, the goat is so... Is that constant and that you'll just swipe one out of one out of every now sense and then? Sense of entitlement too. Journalists are great for senses of entitlement. Right. You know. Is there also? Uh, it seems like you're suggesting that there's a, a, an element of self-delusion. Like, do you think that people convince themselves that they're not plagiarizing? That this, these are their thoughts? I mean, yeah. You have these people who are publishing to hundreds of thousands of readers, swiping full sentences from other writers who are also part of the public record. Yeah. And in the age of Google, it's going to get discovered, and people compromise. Yeah, but you don't, get fired. Fine you don't get fired anymore, do you? Well, maybe you just get a press council complaint. I don't know. Did that Wente thing come to the press council? Doesn't matter anyway. You can get fired. Don, how did the press council find on the Margaret Wente case? There was a couple of cases with Margaret Wente. Everybody, Margaret Wente, uh, of course. She, she's, she's, a, she's a gold seam in our profession. What do you mean by that? I'm not familiar with the, with that term. She's a, a known harbinger of complaints. That's all I meant. Yes, but the typical Margaret Wente complaint prior to this uh, scandal was people not agreeing with what she said. Of course, and that's one of the things Don often did so well, which was to try and explain journalism to people who don't understand opinion columns and that sort of thing. Right. Where Margaret Wente strayed from standard practice of opinion columns is when she uh, published a series of columns in which. Full sentences seem to have originated elsewhere. In, in one case, a character who is quoted in the, in the column uh, was somebody that uh, Margaret Wente never met, but appeared in, I think, a piece of Obama campaign literature. And uh, so arguments were formed based on other people's words and, in fact, conversations that Margaret Wente herself did not have, all of which was documented by a citizen journalist, uh, Carol Wainio, on her blog, yeah, Media Culpa. An academic. Ultimately too. finding its way to the Ontario Press Council. So That's correct. That was exactly the time I joined the Press Council in Ontario. That was five years ago, Wainio's complaint against Wente. And it was over a whole series of columns she had written and pieces of this column and pieces of that column were pointed out by Wainio as coming from elsewhere. So the press council decided the entire columns weren't a matter of plagiarism. There were pieces 
bits and pieces of each column, a sentence here or a sentence there or even a thought repeated. Technically, not exactly plagiarism because of the amounts involved here, but still ethically wrong. It's a funny business about plagiarism, though, as Fulford pointed out. I, I was taught when I was at high school, I had to learn by rote, huge swaths of poetry and Shakespeare soliloquies and, and public speeches. So it's there in the, in, 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 in the battlefield up there. And, and it inevitably comes out in your style. That's, that's what makes our individual style, is, is your learning and your reading. We're sampling. Or sampling, whatever. But suddenly, you, you, you know when you're seeing writers who have had a certain kind of education because you see the way they write. Um, when when um, some phrases come through in Blatchford's prose sometimes and you think, oh, that must be from her grade 10 high school English teacher. Something like that. that that's not, not a criticism. It's just a, a sign of, of stuff that's picked up. Working journalists who are writing too much are picking stuff all the time. And they see a phrase and they like it. And they like it so much, they think it's theirs. And, and then there's this, this time factor that comes in. Um, but I think also what really comes in, just trying to mm-hmm. answer this question on plagiarism, is this sense of omniscience, that I'm the one that, that has the right to write this because I know how to make it work in my column or my article. And they just go and do it. And they, don't, they can't seriously be thinking of the consequences because the consequences are potentially so horrible. Sure. I wouldn't have trusted, but they do it anyway. They do it, and I think it's just... like shoplifting in a way. Yes, and, and to return to uh, the Wente case, Don, I think that people are generally forgiving when a writer, especially when they take accountability for a borrowed phrase here, a turn of phrase there. The problem where I think that the Ontario Press Council was wildly out of step with the general public's response to Wente was that this was an intellectual crime beyond lifting a word or two. This was about building an argument, uh, an argument that in, in, in one specific case was against the Occupy movement that was trying to prove that these are a bunch of sort of dilettante, weekend warrior, uh, entitled young people. Based on evidence, that was presented in such a way that you would think that Margaret Wente herself researched this. And in fact, she did not. And when she could easily have attributed it to the source that she got. It. Absolutely. She didn't even have to do any more work. She yeah. would just have to admit that she didn't do the work. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I think that when the press council gets into the fine grain of, well, a sentence is too little, a paragraph is too much, where does this f- figure in? Perhaps you're losing the, the forest for the trees. Well, no, because... Attribution became a big part of that discussion. And the fact of the matter is she could have attributed the things fairly easily. Uh-huh. And that was pointed out. So, did, did the Globe uh, publish the, the, the press council's findings? Uh, yes, it did. Uh-huh. And so, they also gave her a short leave of absence. A short leave of absence. And she writes there today. She went to Florida. I don't know. Was she in Florida? No, and I don't know. <laughs> okay. I thought we learned something. <laughs> I think that that was a turning point, I think, that case. Uh, certainly it was for me and my conception of press accountability in this country. And I think for a lot of readers, that was a case where what ultimately happened in consequence, uh, I think that the Globe did not realize the damage that that case did to their credibility. Would uh, you agree? I disagree with that. I think they did understand it. Wente is their most popular columnist. Yes. And when she found to make a mistake and they publish a decision by a council, an independent council, that's an embarrassment 
But that, but that followed months where they were very uh, aggressively rude to Carol Wainio, who, who first went the route of writing to Sylvia Stead, who, who went through the front door first, saying, what's, what's up with these problems? Yeah, well, I think that whole uh, episode was also a bit of a trial for Sylvia Stead, was it not? I think so. So the, public, the role of the public editor came under intense scrutiny, too, scrutiny then, too. And the result of that was she no longer reported to the editor. She reported to the publisher, mm-hmm. and that's that was a huge. There change. was meaningful change within that organization. Absolutely. Of course, without the blog of Carol Wainio, one wonders if any of that would have happened. Yeah. Well, eventually they would have hit a situation where it would have happened. Well, every profession needs a whistleblower. Yeah. Let me read a few of the decisions from the Ontario Press Council. Its last batch of decisions before amalgamating into this new body from May 2015. Wendy Coles versus the Waterloo Region record. Dear Ms. Coles, please be advised that your complaint of February 13th has been dismissed by the Ontario Press Council. You contend that an editorial commenting on the court decision of August 18th, 2014, ordering the return of a dog, Gabby, to the National Service Dog Training Center is based on a factual error. The council has concluded that despite the statement on which you rely, the dog was and is National Service Dog Training Center's property. Jackie Ryan versus the Toronto Star. Dear Ms. Ryan, the Ontario Press Council has decided to dismiss your complaint about a photo of a circus monkey and trainer published by the Toronto Star. You can be assured that the Press Council is aware of the concerns you raised, but you should understand news photos often show moments of cruelty, despair, or even death of people and animals. While upsetting to see, in this case, the photo might help others to realize what happens to animals in captivity and voice concerns about organizations which profit from such mistreatment of animals. Thank you for taking the time to express your concern. One last one. Ezra Levant versus the Globe and Mail, uh, on decision by the Ontario Press Council, December 2014. Dear Mr. Levant, thank you for forwarding your complaint against the Globe and Mail. As you point out, fair reporting involves a clear attempt to seek comment from both sides to balance a story. Council is in agreement that your point is a fundamental requirement for reporting especially when contentious issues are involved. However, Council notes that the writer, Simon Haupt, is not a reporter. He is a media critic. I gotta thank you for that. I didn't know that media critics didn't have to call. He's just signed up. That one sold me. If I knew that as a media critic, I didn't have to actually call for comment. Defending, defending opinion makers is, is a, a considerable part of what press councils do, is explaining the difference between news and, and opinion mongers. Right. The problem here is that the piece in question was both a reported piece and a piece of criticism. As so much of journalism, these lines are getting blurred, and critics do, I mean, I, I make these decisions on an ad hoc basis. Is this something where I can just discuss comments that are already a matter of public record, or do I have to call both parties? And well, to what degree is this a news story? To, to what degree is this an op-ed? All of the lines are, are, are fuzzy to the point of incoherence. So. Is this an attempt to kind of reestablish order in journalism? This belongs in, in this section, this belongs in that. This, this was an attempt, press council. Is the press council, you're making these, how many angels on the head of a pin is, you know, what, how, how many opinions in a reported piece make it a piece of opinion? How many facts make it a piece of news? Is, are these the kind of decisions we can look to you for? Can look for me uh, to some extent to um, work my way through the jungle of, of a, a not very well defined business, but um, someone who's nevertheless in his own career, made a certain number of mistakes um, that he's learned from. There, there's an ethical route in journalism, which if you start going at it, is quite easy to see. 
a moral equation to journalism. And I think it's the same equation you have as a human being. I don't think there's a special set of rules for, for journalists, even, even media columnists. I've been a media columnist. I've made enemies all over the place. Just even presenting yourself as a media critic, you've already made a whole bunch of enemies. But um, there are certain basic rules of decency that are, that are not that difficult to, to parse out. And you know that. I do, and, and I think that it's worth pointing out again that this profession, if we can call it that, um, our mutual friend Michael Enright once told me that a, a journalist is uh, somebody who borrows lunch money from a reporter. <laughs> if it is a profession, is not, by intention, for very clear reasons, we follow the same rules, uh, both of uh, free expression and perhaps of ethics and morality, as any citizen. I agree. And, and that is never more true than when everybody has the same capability to reach a wide audience through social media as we do now. But psychologically, I think because we have such access to our medium, to newspapers or broadcasting, and we have such an influence over public opinion, psychologically, I think it gives even the most sincere of us senses of entitlement. Like, we, if, even if we think we're doing the good work of fighting evil and afflicting the, the um, What's, what's the phrase? I think we afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Yeah. Those got confused sometimes, yeah. but I'm pretty sure yeah. that's what it's supposed to be. Um, so uh, even doing that, um, we can make um, distortions. And to have a body um, like a press council that at, least, that at least is looking at this sort of thing, that is set aside, it's not perfect, it's not flawless, it's not uncompromised from time to time, but nevertheless, it's a body that is looking at the business of journalism, the business of uh, passing on the stories of society to society, to have it as a strong second look, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I have one last question for you. How much? How much what? What does it cost to join? I mean, we have to say that the press council, which, which adjudicated... Oh, oh. It, it, it is funded by the news organizations that it uh, what, regulates. Whatever he tells you, I want to say something after. All right. Because he, he's going to give you the truth. I'm going to give you something else. Uh, First, back to your point made about five minutes ago. Sure. The one thing that the press council has always stressed is proper labeling between stories and columnists so that it's clear that this is a column of opinion as opposed to a news story full of uh, reporters. So, so to my question of is, is part of the point to restore order to what am I reading, is it opinion or is it reporting, the answer is yes, that is what you're trying to do. Yes, that, that's important. It's important that the public understands what they're reading and what the sources are and whatever. Thank you for clarifying that. All right, so what, what's it going to cost me to be judged by the press Well, it depends. Uh, no, on I want to do this one, okay? Do you mind? No. He's difficult. He's really difficult. He's... <laughs> Look at me. Turn the chair. <laughs> Because you're you, and because we're in front of these people, mm -hmm. for one dollar, I'm going to give you a free ride for a year. And if at the end of that year, you think we've done you any good, if we've taken six rants away from you that you didn't particularly want, or if we saved you from even a hint of litigation, you can, you can recompense us what you think. And after that year, though, we'll have figured out what on earth we can charge a whole new platform that we're not experienced with. So you sign? Deal? Your right. hand is out right. for a shake. It's going to cost me a dollar. One dollar, a chicken, chicken fee. To be subjected to your judgment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Deal.
It could be fun, but if I don't like the ruling, I can write media criticism about that, right? Yeah, of course. John Fraser, I want to thank you for everything, but particularly for making it known to me that one can be a detested media critic, hated by your peers, and grow up to be the president of the National News Council. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you to everybody here. Give yourselves a, a round of applause, please. I think we have time for some questions. And I have a microphone over here, so we'll pass it along to, uh, to anyone who has a question. Okay, we have one from the back. And if you don't mind, let us know who you are before asking the question. He's so my name is Paul Knox. I'm a professor here at Ryerson. And uh, one thing I'd like to know is what criteria the press council, the National Press Council, would use to judge a person like Jesse uh, in the unlikely event that anybody would um, bring a complaint. I mean, I believe the Ontario Press Council had some kind of a document that <clears throat> it used to, you know, make its judgments. Um, is the National Press Council going to have, you know, a set of criteria or a set of uh, principles or a code or standards or anything? I mean, what do you use to measure uh, the performance of uh, organizations that people complain about uh, when the council is sitting around making these decisions. I'm going to ask Don at some point before we leave this question to talk specifically of what the press council has done and what it's passing on to us in terms of what publications themselves have as their own code. But uh, the reason he's getting a free ride is I don't know the answer to that. We, ha we, we, we need a guinea pig. <laughs> I think you uh, hold need... Hold on, hold on. We need, a, we need a good guy to help us establish how we can be of use on both sides of the equation to, to an element that press councils have never dealt with before. Um, I don't know, does the Australian Press Council deal with online? I don't know. We're meeting, we're meeting with the head of the Australian Press Council. I mean, there are much more pugnacious people than the Canadian people. I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear what his experience is. <laughs> I'm seeing what I can do about that, but I think that you need the validation of, of new online media to we make do. this thing. We do. Really, you should be paying me. I've never regretted a purchase more. Okay, I'm okay. having buyers regret. I'll pay you a dollar. All right, now, now we've set yeah. the balance straight. <laughs> I, I haven't answered that, Paul, because I don't know in terms of, of the new media, but the old media, there, there are... Thanks to newspapers themselves, there are some good criteria. I'm going to ask Don to attend to that a bit. Um, sure. Uh, it's going to be a cascading flow uh, to uh, put every complaint against a method of looking at the criteria, the practices, and the codes of each individual paper or, or media member. Uh, and secondly, there's the all the criteria of the former press council. So, for example, if you were a member of a press council in BC, you'd be held to their standards as well. And, and beyond that, there's the Canadian Association of Journalists codes we would use as well. I think I want to say uh, one other thing that's maybe a night's move removed from this, but... Um I have been a known cause of complaints rather than someone who's had to listen to them. The closest experience I've had to what I think I'm going into is being a church warden where I had three years of just constant complaint and I lost my faith out of it for a little while. Because Jesse read all those animal stories, I think the first complaint that came in to Don was about a bear from northern BC, am I right? 
But I listened to this man, it was an education for me, I listened to him, carefully listen to the complaint, to talk, I was eavesdropping, um, I don't know if you know that, our offices aren't together, but um, listening to the care that he put in talking to someone who was outraged at a picture in a weekly paper uh, in northern BC of, of, she wasn't opposed to shooting the bear, the bear had come broken into the house, but it shot and there was blood all over the place and she thought her children were going to be traumatized by the sight of this picture. And listening to the care that, that Don did, talking this through so it would not be a complaint, but there would be an under, a better understanding of why a newspaper like that had legitimacy in northern, northern BC to print something that a lot of people might be worried about, and the picture would sell a few papers. Explaining that was, was, a, was a, a revelation. Did, did you guys see this photo? This bear murdered in the kitchen, blood everywhere. That's why it was published. You should have just said that. That's a great, that, that art. Who's going to turn that down? I, I explained how that was a huge event in her community and couldn't go unreported. <laughs> and there wasn't that much blood, trust me. <laughs> I stand corrected. Um, well, I'll tell you the wor worst thing that ever happened to me, uh, which I was indirectly responsible for, and I thought, in fact, I had to resi should resign as editor Saturday night. It's a bizarre story. We, there was a, a, a very good freelance journalist in the um, uh, West Coast who wrote a story. Saturday night had, had a, liked stories that had violence in them, but they had a strong anthropological or sociological impact. And this was a story of a woman who was so distraught at the state of her life, she was unbalanced, and she killed herself and tried to kill both her children and only successfully did one. The reporter did a, a, a very serious research going back as far, finding a series of, of misses by different agencies in this case. And it was in a small town in uh, Vancouver Island. Anyway, the photo editor has the challenge of illustrating the story. And it turned out there was only one picture of the woman. It was with, was with her best friend, who came from Souk, BC, which is on, on Vancouver Island. The picture came, and it had two people in it, the, the, the best friend and the woman. And we published the woman that killed her kid and herself, and the one kid that got away with it and has been taken over by the friend. We said, why would this woman want to kill herself and her two children? And put the picture on, on the cover. It was, it was a bit grainy, but it made, it made a very powerful picture. Two months later, the art director sent two copies of the magazine, the photograph, back to the woman who had lent us the picture. And she went to the post office. She just had a post box. And she opened it up and found out we put her picture on the cover, not the dead woman. We put a living person on the cover of Saturday Night Magazine. Asking why, why she would want to kill. She was so upset when she left the place. Her car rammed into a hydrant. And the first we heard about it was from her lawyer, whose name, last name was Slaughter from Sirk, B.C., and I thought it was over. I mean, first of all, uh, the owner of the magazine at that time was Conrad Black and his millions. So I thought, this is, we've done this. The, the art director had her resignation on my desk, and I thought, well, it's going to have to have mine too. And then we got a phone call, a second phone call from Mr. Slaughter, who had spent an entire weekend driving all over Vancouver Island to Victoria, and he found out that the only place that sold Saturday night on all of Vancouver Island was the, was the newsstand at the Empress Hotel, and they only ever took two copies, which was pretty humiliating to hear. But he said it would be a sin for this poor woman to become a sort of um, 
feature story about uh, the fact she'd taken on the, her dead friend's child, and he said, um, we should be working towards the children and this woman. And so he negotiated with us at the magazine and with Hollinger a settlement that established a trust fund, an education trust fund for the two kids, uh -huh. fixed the car. That's a very pre-internet story with a, yeah. a happy yeah. ending that might yeah. not be yeah. possible today. Yeah. I think but what, it, people but don't... what it taught me was that there, there are other standards. And of course, I'm the, I was the beneficiary. Could have been the end of my career, mm -hmm. uh, or the guy who published the wrong woman on the on the cover Saturday night. But it left a strong impression with me that there are, are elements in journalism that journalists don't actually understand. That there are lawyers that aren't all rapacious. There is more variety in in human nature than we generally tend to give credit. And I was the one that could be the victim. I wonder whether I would have been as generous in the other way around. And there's a capacity for forgiveness of honest mistakes. I think people with the reputation that, the, that journalists have as just being jackals moving from one human tragedy to the next, a lot of people don't realize that when you publish, you live in fear that you got something wrong. And, and how much, I think, every working journalist wants to get it right. Yeah, sure. John, you should have asked Jesse before you offered him membership for $1, how many complaints does he get? Because we're gonna have to deal with them now. I, 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 will, I will personally deal with him and enjoy it. <laughs> All right, that was your Canada Land show. It was recorded in Toronto at Ryerson University. Hey, if you want me to come and record a Canada Land in your town, working with your university is a great way to get me there. If you think you can make that happen, or if you want to get in touch for any other reason, email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all, and I respond when I can. I am on Twitter, at Jesse Brown. The show's website is canadalandshow.com, and that is where you should go to sign up for our weekly newsletter, Not Sorry, right now. The crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday, and the next episode of Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, please support it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.